Welcome to the Homeschooling Workshop cassette tape series. This is tape number one, entitled, Why Homeschool? Our instructor is Mr. Greg Harris, author of the Christian Homeschool and director of Christian Life Workshops. If you have further questions regarding Christian homeschooling, please write to us at Christian Life Workshops, 180 Southeast Kane Road, Gresham, Oregon. 97080. We will be glad to send you a resource packet of information to help you teach your children successfully at home. This packet is free for the asking, but if you can do so, please include one dollar to cover our postage and handling. In this first introductory session, Greg will present three major advantages of homeschooling. The social advantage, the academic advantage, and the lifestyle advantage. Now here's Greg with Why Homeschool. As I've traveled across the country, I've heard quite a few of the arguments against homeschooling. Perhaps you have as well. Perhaps you've been stumped by a few of the questions and the arguments that come up. But I discovered not too long ago that if I took those same arguments and applied them to another, very common domestic activity, they all sounded totally absurd. And so I'd like to open the workshop tonight by just taking you through a list of questions about the danger of home cooking. Think for a moment what you would do if your neighbor, seeing you grilling hamburgers over the back fence, uh, stepped up to you and said, uh, boy, I admire you. You cook for your children every day, don't you? Well, I could never do that. And so then they launch into these kinds of things. Well, you know, our children are too valuable a resource to be left to amateur cooks. Only certified nutritionists should be allowed to cook. Home kitchen equipment could never be adequate. All children should eat three standardized meals per day in government cafeterias. Home-cooked meals can be abusive. Children need to eat with other children in order to learn proper table manners. I could never cook for my children every day, so I send them out to the local restaurants. They're professionals. And if everyone cooked at home, the restaurants would close and millions of people would starve to death. Now, believe it or not, every one of these statements or questions have been framed in opposition to teaching your children at home. And the amazing thing is that we don't respond to those questions in context of teaching with the same kind of chuckle that we do when we hear them applied to cooking. Because there was a time in which the, con the idea that people were not qualified to teach their own children at home would sound just as ridiculous. And if we don't do something about the direction of the family and of the nation and of our society as a whole, the day may come when these arguments will all be taken very seriously. That we could find our kitchens under state regulation. And we could find our children required to have their tests on a regular basis to make sure that they're getting all the nutritional needs that someone has decided they should have. 
What we're going to do tonight in these first two sessions is look at the whys of homeschooling. I uh, believe that what we'll do tonight sets the foundation for what we're going to cover tomorrow. Tonight is why. Tomorrow is going to be how. And in order to understand the why of homeschooling, we're going to look at three major advantages that, that your children will experience, that you will experience. The first is a social advantage. How many have ever heard the question, well, what about socialization? Everyone gets that question. The next time you hear that, just snap your fingers and say, well, I never thought of that. <laughs> the fact is that the social training of a child is one of the primary reasons for homeschooling. The second we're going to look at is the academic advantage. We're going to look at the advantages of tutoring and the advantages of the kind of scheduling we can provide in the home. And finally, we're going to look at some lifestyle advantages, things that just make life easier, a little less hectic, a little less frantic. So let's begin with the social advantage of homeschooling. In order to understand the social advantage, we have to understand the basis of social training, what some would call socialization. The key to strong social skills is a strong sense of identity. If we were to have one of you come up and uh, introduce yourself to this audience tonight, if we kept pressing you, asking for details, tell us, who are you? Tell us more. You would begin to rattle off a mental list of all of the most important relationships you have. Your relationship with God, your relationship to your spouse, to your children. You would eventually get into your work, your hobbies, the things that you do, the church you attend, the school you attended in college, any famous relatives in your family tree, you'll mention them. Why? Where are you going through all of that? I ask, who are you? And you're giving me all of this. That's so much, not so much telling us about you as it's telling us where to find you if we were looking for you, isn't it? It's telling us your place and your purpose. If you have any responsibilities, if you hold any important positions in your work, in your church, in your community, you'll mention them because your sense of identity is always a combination of your place and your purpose. If we were to take away any of your major relationships quickly, you would go through what is called an identity crisis and go off trying to, to find yourself. But in fact, you're not looking for yourself so much as you're looking for a new place and a new purpose for yourself. And so when we're dealing with children and we're trying to give a child a strong sense of identity, the best way to do that is to give him a strong sense of where he belongs and a strong sense of what his purpose is for being there. All of us have a place, we all have a purpose, and that's all the identity we need. It's only when we deny the relationships, when we forsake our calling, as the Bible would, would phrase it, that we find ourselves having an identity crisis. And so, if we are going to raise a child with strong social skills, we're going to have to provide the child with a place and a purpose. But what is that place and what is that purpose? 
Even if your children are born in litters, they come into the world in something called an age-integrated setting. Now, in this setting, everyone is reaching for higher levels of maturity. You have the youngest wanting to do what the middle one is doing. The middle-born is wanting to do what the firstborn is doing. The audacious firstborn wants to do what you're doing. Why do I have to go to bed? You're not going to bed yet. Have you ever met those kinds? And it's interesting that in this particular setting, even parents are not the end of the line because God intended for us to have elders, not only elders in the church, but elders in our families, our grandparents, our older relatives, people that we're supposed to be able to look to as an example of what it's supposed to be like when you do it right. People who are down the road a little farther than we are and who can teach us a few things. All of us are following Christ, but God has given us to one another in order that we might follow one another as we follow Christ. As Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. There is no bureaucracy here that says that this child is going to have to go through all of this in order to get to Christ. But he is fortunately given role models and examples that he can look up to, not across to, but up to. And so we have, in this setting, an age-integrated place, a place and a purpose that stretches everyone in the direction of maturity. Now, it's been observed that this firstborn child is the most likely to go farther and faster in his career or calling than any of the other children in the birth order. That's the one that's most likely to be the President of the United States. The one that's most likely to become an astronaut. The one that's most likely to become the head of some major company or some major event. That's that firstborn child. Why is that? Now, it's my opinion that this firstborn child arrived in his family and the only one in his life at that point were his parents. And so they became his role models. And he wanted like everything to be like them. And he wouldn't accept the limitations in his life. And so he was constantly striving and it became a part of his personality to strive for those kinds of incredibly impossible goals. I want to be like my dad. And my dad is only about four feet, five feet taller than I am, but I'm still going to try. And that becomes a part of his personality. The middle child is not raised entirely by parents, but rather by a combination of the firstborn and parents. Have you noticed how the older children love to just tell these new kids how things go in this family? You know, they've got seniority. They're the establishment, right? And so they love to give an orientation to these uh, new underlings. This youngest child it's possible that he could be raised almost entirely by older children. And so he's the one, it's been observed, that's most likely to still be living at home at about the age of 25. No evidence of wanting to move out, become independent, get a job, things like that. Why? Why is such a difference between the youngest and the firstborn? This child spent those early, impressionable years of his life only wanting to be like an older child, and now he's made it. <laughs> now, as you can see from just this one child,
charge. In your household, your children affect one another positively or negatively. A child's sense of where he's headed, if he's striving for maturity, he's going to have a personality that goes on reaching for higher and higher goals. A child who becomes comfortable only striving for very low and close goals, or worse yet, horizontal goals, is a child who develops a personality that does not strive for excellence, but rather who simply makes his way as it comes easily. And so we find in Proverbs 13.20, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Even within our own household, this seems to be the case, as we see in birth order. And I don't believe that this is a fated result. You don't have to say, well, he's the last born, he's going to be that way. You don't have to say, well, he's the middle born, he's going to have this certain personality. It's all a matter of who is raising who. Tomorrow we're going to have a session in which I'll deal with this issue of how to give every child in your family the rearing of a firstborn in his season. Now notice I said in his season. If you don't have just one child, you're going to have to deal with each child as they come in order to give them their firstborn rearing in his season. And it's just a simple technique of management of the home that allows you to do that. Many families, just by the way they delegate responsibility, create the problems that they later have to live with. Your children will be wiser if they're walking with the wise. Now look at your family and decide who among you is wisest. That should be the person or persons who are having the greatest and closest companionship with each child. Now there's a positive side to this. We find that the positive side of social influence should never be overlooked. Some of us in the homeschooling movement have tended to think of social interaction as a negative, and it is not always a negative. Social groups can be a very good thing if the group is supervised by elders. It can be a good thing if the peer group applies its pressure in love with the interest of the one who's being pressured in mind. It's a good thing if the relationships are intended to sharpen character rather than blunt it. And it's also a good thing if the group supports excellence rather than mediocrity. Tomorrow we're going to be dealing in the family storytelling session with how to celebrate holidays in a way that encourages all of us to go on for excellence, to strive for higher quality of character, to be the heroes that someday others will tell our story. But for now, it's important for us to realize that the social pressure that God intended is a good thing. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. Keep, they keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Those are your elders. If I were to come home one day and say to my wife, Honey, I met this group of guys and I really like them. I'm impressed. And so I've decided that I'm going to start dressing like them. And I'm going to start talking like them. 
and I'm going to start going to places they go, just hanging out with them, just spending time with them, whatever they like, I'm, I'm going to start liking that too, and I'm just going to let their whole culture begin to affect me to the, to the point where I suddenly can be picked out of a crowd as belonging to that particular subgrouping. Now that would make you pretty nervous, wouldn't it, if your husband came home and said something like, you want to say, honey, who did you meet? I mean, are, are these bikers? What, what are we dealing with here? And if he said, no, honey, I've just been in a, in a breakfast with the elders and they've asked me to join them and I want to, I want to spend more time with the elders of the church, then you might breathe a sigh of relief. Hopefully you'd breathe a sigh of relief and you'd say, good. He's going to be sharpening his iron a little bit with these other faithful men. Ephesians 14:15 says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow which way? Up. We will grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. Proverbs 27, verse 17, As iron sharpens iron, so man sharpens another. Sometimes sparks fly when you have a good friend. Sometimes you confront one another in love. And in Hebrews 10, 24, And let us consider how we may spur one another. If that's not peer pressure, I don't know what is. If that's not social influence, tell me, spur? Have any of you ever ridden horses? You know what spurs are for? I'm sure horses don't like to see, you know, spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle, do they? Because they know the spurs are what they get once in a while when the, when the cowboy wants to go a little faster. He, he uses the spurs, and, and horses don't like to be spurred. And you probably won't enjoy being spurred either. And yet you're encouraged to spur one another on to love and good work. To use your clout, your influence, to encourage others to go on with God and to not hang back and not to be satisfied with second best. There are some Christians who flee from that kind of fellowship. They go looking for somebody that will just leave them alone. They sing the great hymns of the faith such as uh, Take my life and let it be. And that's it. They don't go on to the next line, sanctified for thee. They don't want that. They just want God to take them and let them be. Leave me alone, Lord. God has called us to spur one another on, to have social influence. And the way in which this happens in the lives of our children is through the context of touching the palate of our children. We're dealing here with the power of companionship. In Proverbs 22 and verse 6, we have, Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Now, the word translated here, train, is in the original, he the original Hebrew, chanak. And it is an idiomatic usage. It's a colloquial idiom that allows you, as a Hebrew mom or dad, to immediately evoke a a picture, a mental picture of a domestic scene in which a mother and child, a father and child, are having a meal together. And because the baby is ready for solid foods, but not too solid, because the baby's being weaned from the breast and needs to go on to solid foods, the parents look around, they have no plastic baby food grinder. They don't have any little jars of, of baby food that they could give to this baby. So what they're going to do is 
very quietly, chew their own food carefully, very discreetly reach in and take a little dab of whatever is delighting their palate at that meal, and they will touch that to the palate of the child. Now, this is not gross. Some of you are wincing already. This is like a newlywed kiss. It's a very intimate thing if it's with the right person. And so, it's a very beautiful picture of how parents touch the palate of their child, and that's exactly what we're seeing. Chanak, touch the palate of a child in the way that he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now think about that for a moment. This baby has no appetite, no taste, no desires that he can define at this point. And everything that touches his palate begins to educate his palate, to train his taste. And a child whose palate has been touched with good things even when he is older, he will desire the good things that touched his palate as a child. Now think about it in your own experience. Don't you feel a little guilty sometimes when you go home for a family reunion? And deep down inside you're not really sure whether you're going there to, to see your relatives or to eat. Because you know that when you get there, you're going to eat. Has anyone ever had a family reunion where everyone fasted? Everybody wants to taste the things that touched their palate when they were children. And Solomon has this proverb, this picture in mind, when he says, Now, what do you want your children to be doing when they're old? Then touch their palates with that when they're young. Now think for a moment. Who has the mature taste, the educated, the discretion, to be able to instill in a child appetites and tastes that will follow him into adulthood. Who do you want to have access to the palate of your child? Now think, if you were walking down the street with your baby in a stroller, and a nice distinguished gentleman came walking by, obviously a professional, and he looks down at your child and says, your baby looks hungry. Let me see if I can find anything left. And he starts looking around in his mouth and pointing at your child, Get away! That, that is gross, isn't it? If there's something inherently gross about public palate touching. You don't want to entrust this kind of activity to just anybody, even a professional. This is an intimate relationship that is intended to take place between parent and child. And so Solomon is saying, touch the palate of your child in the way you want them to go. Don't let older siblings do the palate touching for you. If you want them to grow up to be an adult, then let adults be the ones who use the power of companionship. Because if you don't, your children will become the companions of fools. According to Proverbs 13.20, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffer harm. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, Do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. The way in which this takes place is by allowing children to spend too much time unsupervised and under the influence of one another. Rather than striving for higher levels of maturity above them, 
Instead, they devote their energies to conforming to the level of maturity that surrounds them. Rather than wanting to grow up, they instead choose to be popular with the age-segregated group that they find themselves in. And so we find in a conventional classroom setting that the classroom is dominated by children. Numerically, they are in control. The teacher can do her best or his best to try to maintain some sense of order. But those of you who have had any teacher training know that one of the ways in which that order is maintained is by playing upon the children's peer orientation and selecting opinion makers and peer group leaders within the classroom. Actually nurturing, nurturing this horizontal sense of what is acceptable behavior in order that the children, rather than wanting to be like the teacher, are instead trying to maintain their status among themselves in an age-segregated horizontal setting. The stratification of maturity levels creates barriers between one age group and another. And folks, as I'm going to show you a little bit later, the age of a child has virtually nothing to do with its cognitive ability. We could just as easily divide these children into groups on the basis of their shoe size as by their age. It makes the same amount of sense. The pooling of ignorance that takes place in an age-stratified, age-segregated setting encourages the children to develop a consensus based upon inexperience. Now think about it for a moment. How would you like to win a beauty contest in a room full of people who are all legally blind? They have no basis upon which to make their their judgment, and yet they're going to make one anyway. They're going to decide, yeah, you're the fuzziest person in the room, we'll pick you. How would you like to win a popularity contest in a room full of fools? Of all the fools in the room, you're our favorite. You see, this is exactly what children sacrifice their uniqueness in order to, to receive. I've known children who had a high interest in classical music go into an age-segregated classroom and suddenly they don't care for classical music anymore. They want whatever's the popular songs on the radio. What happened? The companion of fools will suffer harm. Rather than going on and trying to, to deepen their appreciation for music that will stand the test of time, they become the victims of age-segregated, pooled, ignorance and fooled lack of taste. And, and let's be honest, we are in that situation ourselves. Some of you have taste in music today that will probably not stand the test of time because you grew up in an age-segregated setting. But there are some music, and there's music in every genre that is great music, and there is a lot of junk. And it's all played and mixed together because we are fooling our ignorance rather than evaluating things with any kind of legitimate criteria. Age-segregated settings encourage the stagnation of your child's personality. He's not going to grow up anymore. And have, have you noticed that a child at the age of five or six at home is just bursting with curiosity, just looking for opportunities to please mommy and daddy, you send him into a classroom and suddenly his orientation shifts. Now he's more concerned with pleasing his friends 
than he is with pleasing mom and dad. He begins to disregard the, adult, the counsel of adults because now the most important people in his life are the same size as he is. He's becoming the companion of fools and he is suffering harm. According to Dr. Beatrice Whitting, a professor emerita of anthropology and education at Harvard Graduate School of Education in an article in Quarterly Survival, or Cultural Survival Quarterly in 1986. She writes, there is evidence both from our research in a pre-urban area of Nairobi and from other studies of children from crowded urban areas that constant interaction with large groups of children leads to distractibility. In some, our research indicates that interaction with large numbers of other children leads to an increase in both aggressive behavior and distractibility. We'll be hearing more from Dr. Whitting uh, later on today. But for now, I'd like to just make the observation. Now, some of you are well on your way to having large groups of children already, right at home. But when you put your children into an age-segregated classroom, you thrust them into a setting in which in order for them to achieve their goals socially, they have to resort to more aggressive behavior. It also overstimulates them to the point that they cannot focus their attention consistently on any one thing because there are too many what seem to be important things going on in the room at the same time. I'll be sharing with you tomorrow some techniques that might help you deal with that within your own home. The difficulty of getting the attention, the focused attention of a child while there are other children in the room. And I believe that, that we have opportunity in the homeschool to deal with that issue, the classroom does not. According to Dr. Fred Beauvais of Colorado State University, the power of these peer groups is frightening. In his study of 350 11th and 12th graders, he found that friends are five times more influential than any other lifestyle factor, including the teenager's family, in his decision whether or not to use drugs. When you look at another survey by the advertising partnership, media advertising partnership for a drug-free America, in 1987, a study of 7,000 preteens, teens and adults, found that 15% of the 13-year-olds report smoking pot. 49% of the 17-year-olds smoke pot. 5% of the 13-year-olds have tried cocaine. 19% of the 17-year-olds have tried cocaine. Which way is it going? The longer the children spend in an age-segregated setting, the more likely they are to begin to experiment with these drugs. Now, if you stop and consider your own experience as a teenager, you can see how this peer pressure begins to have its influence upon you. You may stand for a day, you may stand for a week, you may take a stand and stick to it for months, but over the years there's a certain erosion that takes place and the likelihood rises that you will lower your standard in order to continue to receive the acceptance of the group that you've chosen to be accepted by. It's been said for many years now that the homeschool child is less likely to be peer dependent. And now we have at least the beginnings of some statistical evidence to verify what we have known 
by experience and what we've known by observation. Mars Delahook in 1986 conducted a compared 28 home educated and 32 private school children in terms of their social emotional adjustment. The children were first of all screened to make sure that they were similar in intelligence, in age, in sex ratios, and social economic status, making sure that they were comparing apples with apples. The result found that the children in the private school exhibited a greater focus on peer interaction while the home educated children's primary focus was in the family arena. Quoting Dr. Delahook, private school subjects appeared to be more influenced by or concerned with peers than the home educated group. Homeschooling will beat this peer dependency problem. Your children will go into orbit around your home and they will stay there. And although their friendships will begin to be multiplied, the center of their lives, their sense of place and their sense of purpose remains the same. They're a part of your family. They're an extension of what God's doing in your household. They'll have many friends, but only a few brothers and sisters, only you as parents and the center of their lives remains the same. When children go into an age-segregated setting, they literally go out of orbit. You no longer are the center of their life. Instead, a peer group, with its shifting sense of right and wrong, becomes the center of their lives. Is it any wonder that we have the kind of devastation and suffering that we see around us? I believe that America today is reaping the consequence of violating what we learn in Proverbs, the companion of fools will suffer harm. And the only way we can beat that is by letting our children walk with the wise more of the time. The academic advantage of homeschooling. Homeschooling is going to allow for individualized tutoring rather than classroom instruction. Classroom instruction is by its very design a scattergun approach. My father used to go out hunting occasionally, and when he was hunting for birds, he used bird shot, very small, fine pellets, and lots of them, because in order to hit a bird in flight, you had to, you know, just point in that direction and let her go, and the buckshot would, would spread out, and you probably would take the bird with that kind of an approach. You wouldn't want to go bear hunting with bird shot, though, because bird shot would only make a bear mad. You wouldn't want to go moose hunting with birdshot because it would only antagonize the moose. See, if you're going to go hunting for big game, you want to take something that is very focused and that's going to hit whatever you aim at and accomplish your purpose for aiming at it in the first place. And so in, in education, we're dealing sometimes with this same principle. In a classroom, you're dealing with birdshot. Everybody gets hit. But sometimes you only hit them hard enough to make them mad. And sometimes in the classroom situation, those who get hit often enough with birdshot just develop a certain tolerance of birdshot. They, they just start to, to resist it and, and there's no real problems. But if you're dealing with children in terms of targeted instruction, you can pick an educational goal, aim carefully, and hit that goal. You can take it, and this child is then free to go on to the next 
educational goal in that particular subject area. So homeschooling allows that kind of focused, targeted instruction. The content of tutoring is going to be delightful and appropriate. Tomorrow I'm going to be sharing with you a session called Delight Directed Study. And it deals with how to harness your child's delight, his existing interests, in order to motivate him, to draw him into different areas of study. The classroom, on the other hand, well, before we go to that, let's take a look at the method. The method of, of tutoring is going to be personal and targeted at the level of ability of the student individually. The pace is going to be flexible and responsive. Now, a recent book has been published called The Interactive Parent by Dr. Linwood Laffey. In this book, Dr. Laffey's purpose is to arm parents with the information, the inside information that they need in order to get the most out of their public schools. He's writing from the perspective that, that parents, many parents, have to use the public schools and therefore he's written a book to try to help you go in and get what you want from the public schools in your area. Now I, I question whether that's realistic or not, but I certainly appreciate the inside information that he provides in this. And I'm going to quote from him now in several overheads. I don't usually use extensive quotes in this way, but I think that his, his insight, because he is a former public school teacher, principal, and superintendent, and so he has seen it at all these different levels. According to Dr. Laffey, in the age-graded classroom, in truth, little relationship can be shown between the student's chronological age and school readiness, learning ability, or academic achievement. In fact, each chronologically organized classroom becomes increasingly variable as students progress through the grade levels. Thus, a third grade classroom contains students who function academically at first grade level and others whose academic skills are at a sixth grade level. This variability increases at each higher grade level despite the consistent attempts by school personnel to restrict it. Now that situation is responded to in the home school through the use of pacing, the flexible and responsive pacing that allows a student to study at the appropriate level for him. And it's going to change from one subject to another. There is no reason for you to assume that because your child is in the second grade in reading that he's going to be in the second grade in math. Because these two disciplines are different enough from one another that he may have certain facility in one and not have that same facility in another. And so we find that the classroom driven by the fact that there are so many varieties of students in the classroom, is forced to resort to the bright, the average, and the slow categories. According to Dr. Laffey again, the beleaguered classroom teacher typically teaches toward the average, spends extra time with the slow, and provides less attention to the brightest of pupils. If the classroom is divided into instructional groups based upon ability, which is frequently the case for reading and arithmetic, the teacher must attempt to provide enough seat work, also known as busy work, to
to keep occupied those students not receiving direct instruction. Instructional grouping requires more planning time on the teacher's part and increases the stress of keeping everyone engaged in learning in the resultant three rings of the circus. Now, one of our greater allies in homeschooling, Dr. Ruth Beechick, the author of a book, You Can Teach Your Child Successfully, makes this observation. Your biggest problem, speaking now to homeschoolers, is that so many of you are afraid that teachers or society or somebody out there will frown on your way of teaching. You feel safer if you stick closely to a book or a series of books because that is somebody else's plan. That is in print. That must be right. For some children and for some of the time, certain books will happen to be just right. But if you find yourself struggling to mold your child to a book, try reversing priorities. It's the child you are teaching, not the book. Bend the book or find another. Make the studies fit the child. This, more than anything else, is the academic advantage of homeschooling. It's the academic advantage of tutoring. We are able to make the studies fit the child. Unfortunately, the classroom remains a popular school administration tool because of this, what I thought was very insightful of Dr. Laffey. This is the way the classroom is being used. Perhaps it's been used in this way by you as a parent or as a teacher. He writes, the graded classroom provides a means of avoiding honest communication between the school and parents. If a child in the fifth grade uh, if a child is in the fifth grade, parents assume that he is doing fifth grade work. Promotion to the sixth grade readily is translated to the perception that the child has learned. A teacher can report to a parent that his child is, quote, doing fine, or that the child is, quote, really trying. What many parents don't understand is that their fifth grader may be reading at a second grade level and that the grade of B he received in reading may reflect his effort in a low reading group. Dr. Laffey goes on, the graded classroom also enables a teacher to inform a parent that his child is, quote, at the top of the class, without admitting that the student's skills may be four grade levels above his present grade placement, thus avoiding questions about what the school is doing for such a child. The graded classroom allows the teacher to speak in generalities about a student. And notice this, parents can elect to hear what they wish to hear about their child's academic progress, and school officials can maintain the peace. Do you realize the indictment that this is in the age-graded program? It is saying, and Dr. Laffey has been there, that the system that is used is used in order to avoid bringing to the attention of parents that their child is not doing what he's capable of doing, that a child is not getting the service that he's needing, that he's not being responded to adequately, 
The classroom allows us all to talk past one another with coded words, which mean one thing to one group and another thing to the other group. Many of us have been reading about the amazing way in which people can graduate from high school and still not be able to read on a level that would be necessary to function in our society. These people are referred to as functionally illiterate. They are able to read on a basic level, but they are not able to do the, the things that most of us are required to do. This might help us understand how that happens. Dr. Laffey continues, A second advantage of the graded system employed in American public education is that it allows teachers to pass to the next grade level virtually all of their students regardless of the level of achievement attained, and to do so without feeling bad. Since the curriculum is delivered in blocks of single academic years, any decision to cause a student to repeat a given year would sentence the child to repeating some of the material she may have already mastered. Thus, a retained second grader who had learned one half of the second grade material would lose half a year repeating the second grade. Let me stop for a moment. You see, because the grades are treated as units, a student who may in fact be a third grader or a fourth grader in reading is going to be held back for a repeat of the second grade if they have failed in many other areas, many other subjects. A child who may be falling way behind and really needs to repeat material, or better yet, should have gotten it more slowly the first time through, is either going to be put into the next grade level and left to sink or swim, or is held back so that all the other subjects are then going to be jeopardized and suffering because of one or two areas. There is no way to win as long as these things are treated as units. At least in college, you can flunk a course and still go on in your other courses. You may have to repeat that course, but you don't have to repeat your sophomore year. But that's what we're doing to our elementary school children. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 731, writes, 
God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.